Um, well, this is it for our, our time together, at least for this particular round, and it's been, um, it's been a delight. I thought today that we'd end our time together uh, looking at a book that's probably one of my favorite in, in the Minor Prophets, and that's the book of Habakkuk or Habakkuk or however, you, however you'd like to say that. I think we can uh, wrestle and debate on how to say that. I'll just say Habakkuk because that goes a long way back for me. Um, but the book of Habakkuk is an important book. Um, it's situated, if you think about the way in which the minor prophets are structured, it's situated right between Nahum and Zephaniah, um, which, you know, if you're looking for dog names, those are probably good ones. Um, <laughs> but you have Nahum, and then you have Habakkuk, and then you have Zephaniah. And why this, I think, is of interest is if you remember, Nahum is a is a prophecy, it's an oracle that's directed completely against the Assyrians, against the Ninevites. So the way in which the minor prophets come to us now is this collective whole, this complex yet unified witness is a kind of, um, a kind of challenge to the nations to either go in the path of Jonah's uh, Nineveh or to go in the, into the path of Nahum's Nineveh. Which Nineveh will you be? Will you be the one who, who responds to the prophetic word of the Lord, who submits themselves to the sovereign hand of the Lord, or will you continue to act in defiance? Because that's the kind of position that we have here with Nahum and, and Jonah kind of set very near one another with Micah in the middle. Um, and then you have uh, um, Habakkuk in between Nahum and Zephaniah, so that Nahum is this challenge, this prophetic word against the Neo-Assyrian kingdom. And then you have Zephaniah that shows up, which is a challenge to the coming onslaught of the Babylonians in exile. So there's a sense in which Habakkuk, even within its canonical placement in the Minor Prophets, the eighth book of the Minor Prophets, that even its placement has something to tell us theologically. Its placement is in between times. It's in between the deliverance of the Lord that they experienced from the the Neo-Assyrians And it's also between the oncoming exile that was going to come to them in the 6th century, which, by the way, forever changed the face of the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom would never be the same after 596, Nebuchadnezzar comes in for round one. And then 586, he comes in for round two. And the walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And then in 581, there's another round. So there's three, uh, if not maybe more, exiles that occurs, the, the stripping, the made bare, um, that you read about, say, in a book like Lamentations, where there's this deep, gut-wrenching sense that everything that we have known, our, our entire symbolic worldview has come undone. And, and now all we're left with is the ruins, and God meets His people again in the ruins. So Habakkuk is caught right in the middle of these two particular periods of, of Israel's life, And it begins to raise these kind of questions, these kind of penetrating questions that really is at the heart of the Old Testament, it's at the heart of the Bible, which I think might come as an initial shock to us, especially for those of us like myself who may come from a kind of of Christian background that calls one to stiff upper lip Christianity. I think we heard a little bit about that this morning from, from Deborah. This kind of call to um, what we might call Stoic Christianity that recognizes that one doesn't allow grief and questioning and doubt to become a major component of what it means to be a follower of Christ. In other words, um, 
doubt, difficulty, confusion, those are not the opposites of faith. I mean, I think that's an important thing to recognize. Those are not the opposites of faith, but actually at times they are ingredient to a life of faithfulness to wrestle with these kind of things. And Habakkuk is going to bring that right to us. Habakkuk is going to raise the kind of troubling questions that you raise in your own mind when you're wrestling with the faith philosophically or theologically. The kind of questions that modernity has brought to us, I think, in full force. How could God be all-powerful and all-loving and then allow these kind of things to happen? As Sandy begins to you know, take a hard left turn onto the eastern coast of the U.S., I mean, these are the kind of questions that even my children asked me, my oldest. I can remember them after a major storm came through a few years ago. He asked me from the back of the car, Dad, why does God allow those kind of things to happen? And my most profound theological response was, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, these are, these are the difficulties that, that face us. And, 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 and by the way, um, it's going on somewhere in the world all the time. In other words, we tend to get rather narcissistic about this and say, why do bad things happen to good people when it's happening in our world? But it is helpful, I think, to step back and get a global perspective and recognize it's going on somewhere around the world right now all the time. These are the very complex matters of faith that are allowed into, let me put it this way, the Bible authorizes you and me to raise those kinds of questions. Now, prepare yourself. You might not get the kind of philosophically satisfying answer you're after, but it at least allows us to raise those kinds of questions. Uh, This has been a real shift, I think, for me, where there was a time when, I don't know, I guess my ideal Christian was that character out of Fox's Book of Martyrs. My wife and I lived for a year in Oxford, England, And we were literally, I don't know, a five-minute walk from where Latimer and Ridley, those two bishops, were burned at the stake there in Oxford on High Street. And you can walk there. Now, I don't know if you know the story or not. It's it's given to us in Fox's Book of Martyrs, for example, where Latimer and Ridley, they're tied to the stake. and, And I think it's Latimer that says to Ridley, play the man because today we'll light a fire in England that will never burn out. You know, that kind of stuff. Wow, that that's it right there. Well, you know the rest of the story on this, right? I mean, I, I'm sure you do. Um, the way, this is the bad part. The way the sticks were set up, um, Latimer went quickly. He died very quickly. Ridley, it took him over a half hour to die. It was awful. It was brutal. Um, and this, by the way, Thomas Cranmer was up in, the, you know, up in his prison cell, forced to watch from the window what was going on. And, and the way in which Dermot McCulloch, the biographer of Cramer, describes it, I mean, Cramer was so overwhelmed that he physically threw himself to the ground kind of thing. I mean, it, it, this was awful. And guess what Cramer did? It's like, well, I think I can renegotiate right, some of my doctrinal commitments. Um, I kind of like Cramer now. You know, in other words, I think there's a sense in which I can appreciate Allowing in this kind of difficult. Now, eventually, Cranmer, you know, goes to the flame as well, and he throws his right hand into the flame, and he says, "Let this hand that offendeth be the first to burn." I mean, there's that kind of Fox's Book of Martyrs thing there as well. But what you see with Cranmer is the kind of complexity of it, the difficulty of wrestling between our faith and our doubt. I mean, even John the Baptist, John the Baptist, that final figure, in many ways, the final Old Testament prophet 
sends two of his disciples to Jesus the night before he dies. And do you remember what, what the express purpose of sending those disciples to Jesus was? Ask Jesus, are you really the one? Right. I mean, this is John the Baptist the night before he dies his martyr's death. is asking Jesus, are you really the one? You see, the Old Testament, the Bible, it's earthy. It's kind of messy. It allows this kind of complaining, this kind of questioning, this kind of difficulty right into the very fabric of what it means to be a follower. And here he is, here Habakkuk, in the second verse. We know very little about him. Very, know very little, frankly, about when this book was even written. But here's Habakkuk having a back and forth with God. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, Hamas. You might know that term. Violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Their strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law, now listen to this, the law, the Torah, on effect of this, it's paralyzed. Justice, that right ordering that leads to shalom and wholeness, human flourishing and abounding, that's not prevailing. The wicked him and the righteous, and justice is perverted. I mean, this is the claim that, that Habakkuk is making, and as we're going to find out, he's making this in light of the rising of this Babylonian kingdom, this ruthless Babylonian kingdom. And he gets a response from the Lord that's kind of unsettling, actually. Here's what the Lord says in his answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And this is where you have to put your seatbelt on. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Their hordes, I'm skipping here, advance like a desert wind. They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their own God. And by the way, that's a theme throughout the whole of the minor prophets in the prophetic literature. You look at the might of the Neo-Assyrian people kingdom. You look at the might of Nebuchadnezzar in this Babylonian kingdom as they flex their muscles before the nations and sweep over the whole earth bringing their tyranny. At the end of the day, what does God say? They're nothing but puppets. They're nothing but servants in my ultimate purposes. So what is it that the response here from the Lord to Habakkuk? The response is very much like Job, right? The response is, I'm God, I'm in control. None of this is catching me off guard. I'm not twiddling my thumbs wondering what's about to happen next. But I'm moving all of these things for my own purposes. And you might find some comfort in this. Because you might get that kind of answer from, I don't know, um, someone who's kind of, I, I don't know, maybe flat-footed in their theological appreciation of this kind of stuff. God's sovereign, here's your, here's your castor oil, swallow it. See ya, right? 
Um, but, that, but Habakkuk, he's not satisfied with that, right? He's got another question, as you might too. Oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot cannot tolerate wrong. What is this here? Habakkuk is making a confession that even though God is the one who is ordering these things, that he himself, and this this is ribeye. Stuff, I think, in the theological tradition, right? This isn't cook, milk, uh, cookies and milk. God uses sinful things in a sinless way. I don't know quite how else to put it, really. Was Pilate guilty? Yes. Were the Romans guilty? Yes. Were those high priests who delivered them over guilty? Were they sinners? Was that a sinful act they did in handing, handing over Jesus? Yes, they're guilty, they're responsible. And yet at the same time, we have to confess, Ephesians 1, that it was from the foundations of the earth that God was moving forward to bring His Son as a sacrifice to heal the whole world. I mean, the only way I know how to quite put that is God uses sinful things for His own sinless purposes in His own sinless way. It's, it's hard. It's hard. You can't tolerate these things. You can't tolerate wicked. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. So now we have something here from verse 2. This is where you and I, chapter 2, this is where you and I are, I think, right now. Then Habakkuk says, I'm going to stand at my watch. I'm going to stand at my station on the ramparts. Which some will argue, this is Habakkuk revealing that his location was in the temple. I'm going to do my watch. I'm going to stand at the rampart. This is a kind of liturgical temple action. So it's quite possible, and by the way, that's important. I'm, 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 I'm rabbit trailing here for a second. But that's important because what we see here, and I do this, think this is theologically significant, Habakkuk is wrestling with these ultimate theological matters, the kind of conundrums that we deal with in our faith down to the present moment. Right. I mean, it's not new in the postmodern period to raise these kind of questions. They're fully embedded in the Bible itself. But notice where he's wrestling. He's wrestling in the temple. I mean, one of my dear friends, good friend, and I hate to even bring it up because I don't want it to sound like you know, your friends become illustrations. He's not that. He's a friend of mine. Um, he's no longer a Christian. We went to seminary together. And it's these kinds of things, frankly, that just became philosophically too much. And I, I said to him, I said, listen, it's okay to have these kind of struggles. I think a lot of honest Christians have these kinds of struggles. But do your struggling inside the church, not outside the church. Do it in the temple courts, not outside the temple courts. Bring your doubt here. That's, that's okay. No, but it was too much. You couldn't do that. I find that actually quite encouraging to see um, that here Habakkuk is doing this kind of back and forth with God, this kind of wrestling in the confines of the temple itself, in the context of the people of God worshiping God. In other words, I'm not going to stop my worshiping. I'm going to continue to worship to put it another way, will continue to sort of move in that act of repentance, that turning, in the hopes that God will change our feelings. It's exactly what happens in, in Psalm 73, isn't it? 
What does he say in Psalm 73, Asaph? Which, by the way, I think is a central psalm in the book of the Psalms. Kind of a, a hinge around which the whole book moves back and forth. And here the psalmist says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I don't think he's speaking tongue-in-cheek. I think he's confessing what he believes. This is true. But verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost slipped because I saw the prosperity, I saw the shalom of the wicked. If you read the Psalter in the Old Testament long enough, you know to whom does shalom belong? Shalom belongs to the people of God. And here are the people of God, the righteous, looking at, looking at the wicked, and they're enjoying our shalom. And what does the psalmist say? It almost became too much for me. What were stress fractures within the walls of my faith are now beginning to crack, and now the foundation's about to go. Until, verse 16 and 17... I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Whom have I in heaven or on earth besides you, O Lord? I have nothing else beside you. Do you see what happened? It's in the context of the church. I'm not going to say the person's name, and I didn't ask permission, so if this is, forgive me if you're here and I'm using your story. But I was talking with a gentleman a few weeks ago in here, and it was incredibly moving to me. Um, and uh, we were talking about some of these kind of uh, issues, and, and um, I said, you know, how long have you been here? He said, oh, I've been here for, for many years, actually, back to the Zoll days. And I said, oh, really? He said, but I, but I was an agnostic for most of that time, um, and, and now I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer. And I said, okay, you've got my interest. I'd like to hear about this. And um, he said, you know, out of respect, I never said the Nicene Creed. When people were confessing it, I just I kept quiet. And then all of a sudden, a few years ago, I started saying it, and I believed it. It was true. That is, that is profound. That is Habakkuk, right? I mean, this is, the, in other words, the wrestling that we have with ultimate matters. Doing that in the context of the church together as we wrestle together, that, I think, taps into here, this Habakkuk 2. I waited in, I waited in the temple. And then the Lord answered. The Lord answered and He said, write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, which is very significant. In other words, the prophet is saying here, what I'm doing, or God is saying, you need to write this down because what you're about to write down isn't just for you. It's for future generations as well to wrestle with this kind of thing. It's, I think this is a statement about the canonical authority of Habakkuk, continuing on past the days of Habakkuk himself. For you and for me this morning. Write it down. Put it on a tablet so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Do you see what the Lord says here? What Yahweh says to Habakkuk? Write it down. Put it on a tablet. Even though right now you are caught in cognitive dissonance, even though right now it is hard for you to put together all the pieces, and who can put all the pieces together of providence? That is a dead end often, right? Trying to figure out providentially and making a narrative on the basis of that from our own perspective. How can we see everything that's going on? We can't. And here we have the God telling Habakkuk, write this down, write it for a future generation. Why? Because in the end, I will see, even though it lingers, even though the fulfillment of my promises linger, in the end, it will come forth. It will happen. 
By the way, if I could go back to Psalm 73 and allow Psalm 73 and Habakkuk 2 to sort of mutually interpret one another, which is, by the way, the way which I think we should read the Bible. And here we have the psalmist saying something very similar. It wasn't that Asaph's circumstances had in one sense been alleviated. It wasn't like he looked down the road and saw that wicked, prosperous person, the unrighteous, and he, and he said, oh, he just got kicked right in the face by his horse. Everything is right with the world. It wasn't that. He recognized that, you know what, the circumstances may still be the same, but I perceive the end. I hope for the future. In the future, you will receive me into glory. And now, I don't have anything on heaven or earth beside you. You are enough. I was, for those of you who are in my Tuesday night class at Beeson, forgive me because I'm repeating this, but, um, you know, there's a little section in Calvin's uh, Institutes that people have sort of heisted out of it and called it the golden the golden booklet for Christian living, and it's it's you know you got to get fork and knife out for that as well. And in there, Calvin talks about discipline. Calvin talks about the Lord giving us difficulties. You know, this is that old line from Teresa of Avila, which I've said in here more than once. But you know, Lord, uh, what are you doing? Well, uh, you uh, you know when she had to cross this river and she was sick and. She said, Lord, you hurt your friends. And I don't think that's why you have very many of them. (laughs) Um, This is the kind of thing that we recognize that God does bring difficulty. There is a sense in which it's on the anvil of suffering. And I hate to even talk this way because it's like I... You've gone to that school. I've gone to that school as well in my own way. And I don't don't want a graduate course in that anymore. Right? Thank you. (laughs) But it's a sense in which it's on the anvil of suffering that we meet Christ in ways that we couldn't have anticipated. I don't like saying that, but some of you experientially know that that that's true. And God brings these kind of difficulties in our lives that we look at, right? We look at in such a frustrated way, in a hard way. But He brings these things as a gift. It's hard for me to even articulate it that way because I don't want to be pastorally insensitive. But He brings them as a gift. Why? To help us know that this world is not all that we have. That we are waiting for the end. I mean, Calvin put it... I mean, Calvin got very personal, just so you don't think this is something that happened just in our day. This is Calvin back in the 16th century say, maybe God might give you a difficult marriage. You know? You had this sort of dream about what marriage was going to be like, and now you're 10 years into it, and you're discovering... Stanley Howard Walsh was onto something when he said that everybody marries the wrong person, right? Um, he's like, you know, this is uh, this is this isn't what this is what I wasn't what I expected. Or maybe you have some children, you know, before you had children, and this has happened to me. I was a youth pastor for five years, and I think that's you know, if there is works righteousness, I'm in for sure because of that. Um, but you know, I, I was a youth pastor for five years, and I, and I didn't have any children. I was newly married, and I can remember thinking these these all. These dastardly thoughts like, why can't you just get your kids in line? You know? Or if I was, you know, when I'm a parent, I'm going to do it this way, right? And then God gave me William. I hope he doesn't read this, right? I mean, now, now I have my kids. And now I realize, boy, that, you know, that, that didn't quite pan out either, did it? Um, so you have this kind of thing where you recognize that God might give you unruly children, difficult children, or various circumstances in life. And what do those circumstances tell you? They tell you that this is not all that there is. 
And that's talking about the negative things. But you all know as well that even the positive things in life witness to that reality, don't they? Even a good fishing trip. You remember that scene from A River Runs Through It when they're sitting by the river and, and Brad Pitt's character just caught that big old trout and, and then Robert Redford's sonorous voice comes over and begins to say, and we looked at my brother there suspended between heaven and earth, but we knew that the moment could not last. It was fleeting, right? We don't even know what the present is. Those great moments that are just, this is it. Right? We heard from Deborah this morning. This is as good as it gets and you blink and it's gone like sand between the hands because we're moving we're in motion we don't even know what the present is we're past and future i mean even that witnesses to us doesn't it that this cannot be all that there is and it's why by the way and this is what i think is at the heart of habakkuk and psalm 73 and and really first corinthians 15 paul on the resurrection it's why i'm grateful and you are too That liturgically, every week when we come together to worship, every week, we say at some point, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. We say it at some point, in some manner. And you know what? That's the whole shooting match. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. I believe that this life is not all that there is. I believe, Lord, that there is something beyond that we are pilgrims who are indigenous. We live in this area, but we're waiting for another time and we're waiting for another place. So that's what he's saying. And look at verse 4. This is a famous verse. See, this is God speaking. He is puffed up. He's arrogant. His desires are not right. But the righteous will live by his faith. Paul picks up on that, doesn't he, in Romans 1. The righteous person... The just person lives by his faith. And in the context here, and in Paul, I believe, what is faith? It's the opposite of being boasted, of of being arrogant, of being proud, of boasting. Faith is a recognition that Yahweh Himself will bring His salvation. And we trust ultimately in Him. That's faith, which then leads to faithfulness, right? But that's the faith. The opposite of it is pride. It's self-reliance. What is faith? What is faithfulness? It's a recognition. It's a hope that everything, our salvation, is complete in Him. Everything is in, is in Him. Well, I want to read this final bit to you because this is we have Habakkuk giving us a prayer in chapter 3. This is his response to all of this. And it's worth meditating on during the week if you get a chance. Chapter 3, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. It has a kind of liturgical feel to it. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. Here's a beautiful phrase. In wrath, remember mercy. We know, O Lord, that you're not to be trifled with. We know, O Lord, that you're not our buddy. You're not a genie in the bottle that we put on the mantle to kind of rub to get us out of tight, tight spots. We know that's not who you are. We know, Lord, that you are other. You are holy. You're completely unlike us. But in that, Lord, in that reality of who you are, that mysterious, that tremendous, that fearful mystery that you are, remember your mercy. You know, that's the kind of gospel line, isn't it? Where do we find refuge from this God that is overwhelmingly terrifying? 
And by the way, there are pictures of, I mean, if, you know, if, you, if you've domesticated God in your own mind, you know, the, the prophets just won't let that stand. He is terrifying. What it says in Psalm 77, you know what Psalm 77 says about, or 76 says about the splitting of the Red Sea? When, when, the, uh, when the Israelites were fleeing from, from the Egyptians, this is what it says, The water saw you, O God, the water saw you, and they were terrified. That's, that's the psalmist's explanation for why the sea split. The waters got fearful and they split right open in front of the power of your presence. Right? I mean, this is, you know, this is a, a fr- Moses, I'd like to see your face, O Lord, I'd like to see your glory. Now, you can't do that. If you see my face, you're going to die. But I'll hide you here and you can see a little bit of me. We need to, I mean, we cannot in any way downplay or minimize um, the, the holiness and the otherness of God. So where do we find refuge? Where do we find safety and shelter from that God? This is the gospel word. We find refuge from Him in Him. In Him. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in Thee. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Your cross I cling. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes will close in death, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. From beginning to the end, all of it is, cleave out that rock, O Lord, of Christ, and let me hide in that. And that's where we're safe. I've heard of your, I've heard of your glory and your deeds. In your wrath, remember mercy. Oh, the last bit here, because our time's gone. Verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. That's a hard word. I will submit myself to what you are doing, even though, if we can think about it from William Cooper's standpoint, behind a frowning providence, there is a, there is a smiling face. But I will submit to this frowning providence Now listen to this, and let this be our prayer maybe this week. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on to the heights. Powerful testimony there from Habakkuk, isn't it? It's the prayer, by the way, of the faithful one in Habakkuk 2.4. Though the fig tree isn't giving figs anymore, though the sheep aren't producing anymore, though you bring these calamities on us, yet we will rejoice in you. It's not a dry-eyed rejoicing. It's not a stoic Christianity. Calvin, by the way, in that section in the Institutes is very clear on that. There's no room for stoicism in Christianity, a sort of a, um, a kind of a un, unfeeling, a turn away from the difficulties of life to protect ourselves. It's not that kind of thing. But it's a recognition that we sorrow, but we don't sorrow like those who don't have any hope. And this is the Habakkuk word, a trust in the sovereign hand of God even when it does not make sense, even when it's complex and difficult, and even though you are authorized to raise all the questions you want to to God. But do it in church. Do it in the context of the faithful. And do it in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That this is not all that there is that we're, we're moving forward. 
Well, I don't know if we have time for something to bat around. I want to be sensitive to the time here. Do we? Yes. Okay. The, we've been blessed by the word, and we thank you for unraveling it for uh-huh. us. I don't have the passage before me, but I think he says, I had heard of you, O Lord, but now I see, and therefore I repent to dust and ashes. So he he had wrestled with God and and all the calamities that were taking place in his life. He'd heard of God, and he questioned him, and he had this uh, awful advice from his three buddies and so forth. And he wanted his day in court, and so he finally hears from God, and he listens Mm -hmm. to some of the things that you're talking about. And he says, well, now I see, and I repent to dust and ashes. Mm-hmm. So that's the very end of what you told me, that, that, that Job came to see exactly what you taught us this morning. And the only thing he could do was say, you know, and here's the most righteous man maybe that ever lived, saying, I repent to dust and ashes. I am nothing before you. And and, uh, and, and so he he had heard of God, but now he saw, he said. It's a great passage there. That's good. You know, there's a sense in which you have that kind of dynamic in the book of Romans as well, you know, tapping into this, that you know, God, this is a hard thing too, but God shuts up people into disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Um, this that kind of, um, you know, that it's the goodness of God that leads, leads us to repentance. It's a recognition at the end of the day that we don't have, we don't have anything. Mark, I just want to thank you for your most eloquent teaching. I have felt so ignorant about this entire subject, the whole Old Testament, especially the minor prophets. And it has brought a um, sort of a holy perspective to me on uh, our own life right now, as you say, the present, which is really a mystery. We just truly do not understand it. But you brought a lot to the Advent, and I'm so happy that I could be here for a few of your classes. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.